Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight is no exception. We call it the tsunami of injustice to the RP5. Now, I'll tell you what, folks, as you tune into this program tonight, we're going to show you step by step, and it's probably not going to happen in one show, but in the next few weeks to come, of exactly what that tsunami is and what it was. And if you know anything about tsunamis, they come with major destruction. The RP5 are surviving and fighting for justice. Hang on, folks. We take off right now. There you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with Cliff Stewart, Kendrick Barnes, Samson Riddle, Dennis Merritt, Lisa Stewart, and the entire AJC radio team tonight as we are in a situation, folks, if you know anything about the IRP-6, we're going to explain why they became the IRP-5. What happens when a country betrays its own and leaves its own in harm's way as a result of a criminal justice system that is failing dramatically? That is the case with the IRP-5. Uh, Kendrick Barnes is going to shed some light on that conversation tonight. And we're also going to be joined, bringing to you the former interviews on our program, Hal Waltz. We have his interview, part one, two, and three, talking about the injustice that occurred with these men, uh, the families. The price tag on that, folks, of injustice is overwhelming. We're going to hear from him and other folks chiming in, including some of the IRP-5 given their perspective on the injustice, really, that is the poster child of injustice in this country right now. And I'll tell you right now, folks, if it can happen to these IT professionals, it can happen to anybody. And the process, due process, the judge, the prosecutor in this case, you would think you're writing, I mean, right out of a Hollywood script. That is how dramatically insane uh, this story is. And uh, Kendrick, as we get ready to get involved in this conversation, uh, how important is it that we continue to remind those listening the injustice suffered by the RP5? It's uh, critically important because this could happen to anybody. Uh, because the when when a prosecutor goes after an individual, a lot of times it's not about the justice and the right or wrong of the situation. What they care about is can I win this case, and can they prove this case? Truth truth doesn't matter. It's just can if I get into a court of law, can I prove my point and win? And sadly, this could happen anywhere. And I think everyone should be aware and, and basically protect themselves and, and understand what they could be getting into if you ever cross uh, swords with the federal government. Well, the thing is, what you're dealing with, is, and it's, it's the federal government, but you're dealing with the state government. You're dealing with the uh, state and federal cases that uh, just doesn't seem to make sense. How is it that... You can go into business, do what you need to do, never having a record uh, as far as the law is concerned, 
never in trouble with the law, never any type of uh, action or even anything that looks remotely suspect. How do you take six men with families, church ties, uh, community ties, uh, religious men, devout Christian men, uh, and honest people that are just doing, uh, doing their job? How do you then, in a moment, and let me make that very clear, in a moment, the house, and uproot the family and the pain and the disappointment and the horror. Make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen, when someone is wrongfully convicted, when somebody is doing nothing but the right thing and you're blindsided, you know anything about football, the blind side can be the most dangerous and the most Horrific hits come from the blind side if that quarterback does not see it coming. This is exactly the same except far more greater. A blindsided hit to innocent men who were simply doing their job. We're going to get into that. Samson, your thoughts on this? Yeah, as a, I mean, I've, I've seen this from a third-party perspective, you know, learning about the RFP 6 who then became the RFP 5 seeing, you know, their affected family members throughout you know, the church and the community, and then hearing the, the backstory. I mean, like you said, it almost seems unbelievable in the fact of all the, the things that happened to these men, but it's because, you know, these were, these were bright. These are, you know, upstanding men that got together. They developed a, uh, a product. Somebody in the federal government decided they wanted it, but they didn't want to pay for it. And all the collusion, all the, the conspiracy behind the scenes, whether it be from the federal, the local, the state government, the prosecutor, the judge, everybody that we've named on this show and many shows before it, they all got together and decided that, oh, we're going to put these guys behind bars, as you said, unleash a tsunami of, di- of just destruction and pain into their lives because we don't want to do the right thing and actually pay for a product. Instead, let's take away nearly a decade of their lives away from them, away from their families, the ones they love. Let's take away everything from them that we can and just put them behind bars because this is what we want and this is what we think we can get away away with. And we talk about a little bit, uh, and Dennis, your thoughts really quick. Yeah, it's just, uh, uh, again, I agree with every everything everyone has said thus far. It's just sad to say that it wasn't about, there's no compassion, there's nothing. It had nothing to do with anything but a win. And they, they, they pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. I'll tell you, these guys are innocent. They were wrongfully convicted. But it was all about showing that I could win. And, and what surprised me the most is our jury system. I, I'll never understand that. How, how I, I guess it's, it's what they gave the jurors. Exactly. Uh, I, you have to look at it like that, you know, what they allowed in. But still, it's so sad that you can do anything you want. And, and then, like you talked about earlier, Lamont, how – the tsunami, look at the effect, not only on the men, but on their family, on the justice system itself, on friends. It's just huge, but no one's looking at that. Well, the tsunami always has fatalities, and there are casualties as a result of of a tsunami. And I'm using that word because hopefully our listeners will get to the fact, get to the point of exactly the impact LaWanna Banks-Clark was a casualty to this injustice. She was collateral damage, if you will, to an injustice system that failed. And we were talking a little bit about Gary Walker, the lies that were told that he might get out of jail. 
never considering the impact of those lies. But what I like about the RP5, they, they remain true to their integrity, that there was not a crime committed. You're going to hear from Luana Banks-Clark her words about the betrayal of Gary Walker, what he did to leave his comrades in harm's way is unimaginable. This show will not be completed in one show. We will continue to pull the layers back one by one of this injustice. The RP5. Hang on, folks. On the other side of the break, we're coming back. This is IRP6 Tsunami of Injustice. Law-abiding citizens left in harm's way. Hang on, folks. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. I wanted to be in the military since I was since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 
873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now it's time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders faced with trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, and tonight we deal with the RP6 tsunami of injustice, law-abiding citizens left in harm's way. We are talking about the RP5 now, and that's David Banks, Dave Zapolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, uh, Demetrius Harper. Of course, Kendrick Barnes released. Kendrick uh, walked out of uh, prison, uh, I believe, back was it back in October, Kendrick? Yeah, October of... Uh last year uh, but definitely among the number who said almost seven years six and some rather uh as a result of this injustice that happened uh and our research team is going to look up the definition of a, what is a tsunami what is the impact of a tsunami uh this is we are experiencing this in our legal in our criminal justice system every day uh people are being done wrong people are being treated uh and just freedom and liberties taken away and uh, in this case, Luana Banks-Clark, a casualty 
of that injustice, lost her life November 14, 2018. Uh, and it is our belief, uh, based upon questions asked by the medical staff at the time when Luana Banks uh, Clark was passing, what type of pressure was Luana Banks under? Was she stressed out about anything? What was, was she upset about anything? We can name many, and the criminal justice system uh, was key uh, in that contribution, if you will, I believe culpable uh, in the death of LaWanna Banks-Clark, and we're going to get into that as well. Uh, but I'll tell you right now that when you talk about families being affected, you talk about mothers' hearts being broken, you talk about a church community uh, really an attempt to rip apart this family and these families and communities and all the things that were positive going on as a result of simply the violation of law by these prosecutors, by these U.S. attorneys, by the judge that continue to just paint this picture, folks, of injustice. The RP5, and Kendrick, you can speak to this. Kendrick was a uh, upstanding member of our society, married, uh, doing the things he needed to do. Uh, I've grown up with Kendrick most of my life. Uh, no, never been in trouble with the law. Kendrick, no, a we, day in your life. I mean, and none of us have. I mean, I've never, I mean, outside of a traffic ticket, I've never had any uh, uh, issues with police law enforcement, especially uh, federal law enforcement, any kind. And it, and that's a lot of times when you, when you, when people uh, talk to me about the case, they're they're shocked at. By my age, I was 40 years old when they sent me to prison, and it's like, well, who decides after 40 years of of walking a certain way and and working hard and never get involved? I, I don't do I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I don't do anything, and I just decide one day to hey, you know what? Uh, let's get together with uh, five other guys, let's break the law, go to prison. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. That doesn't make common sense to the average person. So absolutely right. Uh, and these are things that people who know the IRP5 story are talking about. Uh, Howard Waltz, a friend of AJC Radio, just calls organization and really a true advocate uh, of a person, uh, Cliff, that really got involved and really became and got on board in regards to the injustice suffered by the IRP6 uh, at the time, IRP5 now, uh, passionate about and clearly uh, dealing with some of the injustices he suffered could easily read between the lines on this one and know an injustice occurred. Yeah, I mean, Howell is one who does extensive research in every case that he deals with. Uh, He's written several books. And in everything that you you look at how he analyzed the IRP Solutions case, um, it's it's akin to the way that uh, former Judge Sarakin did, that they looked at all of the facts, they looked at uh, what we told them. They looked at the transcripts from the trial and came to the conclusion that something went awry here. There is no crime. These men did absolutely nothing wrong. And how did a judge, first off, let this into her courtroom? And how does a prosecutor so just blatantly commit atrocities of the law and the judge doesn't hold him accountable? 
Judge Arguello didn't hold uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch accountable, and Kirsch didn't hold Arguello accountable. They watched and uh, ensured that these men were convicted by, like like, uh, Dennis said, not allowing the evidence to go to the jury, doing things outside of any realm of the law, but ensuring to, and and Judge Arguello telling the jury, hey, these are things you have to do. You have to come back with a verdict. You aren't allowed to uh, to see any more evidence that that you want to see from these men. Don't talk to the press after the after the verdict comes in. All of these things that make you question what really went on in this situation. And and how Waltz really analyzed it, looked at it, and said, you know, here's another um, example of how far are the federal government in this case. And I mean, you have the same thing, like you said, Mont, the state governments and local county governments, how far they will go to get a conviction just so that they can uh, etch another notch in their belt. And it's just something that if we don't be the voice and as a, as a community, as a country, if we don't speak out against, I don't think people comprehend the depth of being snatched out of your life, whatever's going on, and you're basically kidnapped. And snatched up while your family is left bleeding from the results, from the impact of what you've done to an innocent man, innocent woman that is behind bars. The IRP-5 right now are, are faced going on seven years, seven years of injustice, where a federal retired judge, H. Lee Sarakin, wrote five articles in the Huffington Post. You're going to hear from him tonight. Uh, on an interview we did on this show regarding that. Uh, right now, we're going to hear from David Banks, one of the RP5, talking a little bit about the RP6 case. Let's hear it. We have, uh, we have uh, David Banks uh, with us now from, again, the FCC prison camp in Florence, Colorado. Uh, David, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much. Uh, we just uh, had a conversation with Gary. Sam was just uh, finishing his comment. Um, in the limited time that we have with you, what is it that you want my audience to understand about what has happened to you as it relates to IRP solutions? First and foremost, uh, I'd like to say uh, in, in the case of the IRP 6, the government was fully aware of our business activities. Um, Mm -hmm. In a proffer we submitted to the government, uh, which provided overwhelming evidence, not only of our business activities, investment activities, uh, seeking investment, et cetera, the government was fully aware of who we were dealing with uh, in the federal government, what agencies we were dealing with. Uh, We went through, uh, we kept weekly and chronicle weekly activity reports of all of our business activity for approximately a year and a half to two years. So we have very detailed information we provided to the government with the proffer on what was going on with our company, including the stuff that was going on with staffing companies. Uh, Additional to that, we had a reasonable expectation of revenue at various points between 2002 to 2005, uh, but we kept getting strung along by the government uh, with repeated requests to see the software do more. At, at some point, we got kind of got caught in a catch-22, and obviously it was a very uh, frustrating situation. 
to be uh, continue, continuing to extend our company in debt uh, in anticipation of the government in uh, engaging in business. They, they had spoke about, at the end of 2003, uh, a $12 million pilot project. So we're working toward these types of goals. In 2004, our resource from the NYPD uh, said he anticipated us closing business with the NYPD at the, at the early part of 2004. So we didn't uh, just casually engage the company uh, uh, financially to go, in this time, to go into debt. We had uh, goals based on what we're being told from the Department of Homeland Security as well as our resources, uh, our resource there at the NYPD. So we made a decision to move forward uh, with this business in anticipation of, of $12 million engagement at the end of 2003 in business with uh, the NYPD in early part of 2004. Well, there you have it. David Banks, one of the RP5. Uh, this is not someone who's uneducated. It's not someone who's talking off of the top of his head. It is crystal clear. The position of these men. Kendrick, you work with David. Uh, uh, these, are, these comments, they're flowing as easy as water because they're truth. There's nothing to defend when you're innocent. Yeah, and, and that's the point. When you, you can tell the whole story of the IRP6 story. You don't have to make it palatable or hide things. The, the story is what it is, and it's the truth. And uh, David Banks, I will say, I mean, he was uh, the uh, chief operating officer there. This is a man you can follow. And we really were trying to do something that could benefit this country. Right. And it's sad to see a, a, a how you can take that from a man. I mean, I saw the hours of work. I saw yeah. the late hours. I saw the, the tiredness when they came back from traveling back and forth to Washington, D.C., to New York, Florida, Los Angeles. We're doing demos of the software everywhere. He's coming back excited, telling the, the news we have. There's no business in the world that doesn't believe in their product. Right. And that belief in that product gets turned against you when you stand before, when the prosecution gets a hold of it they make every every positive thing that you've done just believing in your product is illegal as they present it to a jury just being optimistic and hearing news that you know what these guys are interested that becomes a a potential uh red flag that you that they spin and twist when the, when all it came down to this we had a great product we were we were excited our clients were excited, and that's basically the story we can tell. At the end of the day, folks, these are IT professionals who believe in their product. And it, the, the kicker to me is that this product went to the safety and the security of the United States of America. This was not some traveling carbon carnival act no disrespect on a couple of 16 wheelers uh, 18 wheelers these were men who went and stood at ground zero where the devastation of that act of terror shook the foundation of a nation and of a city 
How do you stand at ground zero and say and see the devastation? And as I said last week, I'll say it again. None of this is possible without every member of the RP-16. One is not done without the other. And that is because they had, there was a collective effort that said, you know what, not on my watch will I see the Twin Towers as rubble. Not on my watch. What can we do? You have these men that say, we'll embrace the entrepreneur spirit of America. So they thought. We will build something that makes a difference, that saves lives and protects the nation. And in return, the government of the United States went after these men. Tragic. So we'd like to thank you, Mr. IRP5, for your efforts. David Banks meeting, I believe, with the Inspector General Cliff, I believe, of, of uh, was it Philadelphia or Pennsylvania? The deputy mayor. Deputy mayor excited about this product. And, and we're hearing people say, I mean, this is from uh, law enforcement agencies that saw a product. We haven't seen anything like this. And, the, and then you hear from other competitors that were, that were trying to get into the Department of Home Security. They were questions all the time. How did you get into the Department of Home Security? Because we had something. We exactly. Had, we had software that they had never seen before, what they were looking for. And everyone was like, we've been trying for years to get in there. But and they were looking for something real, and IRP had it. And we even had, you know, some of those companies, to, to your point, Ken, is, would tell us, we, we pay lobbyists millions of dollars a year to try to get a seat where you guys, uh, you know, that we're trying to have the lobbyists call DHS, get in front of the people. DHS called IRP Solutions. And said, we hear you have a product, some software that we need to look at. We need you. So it, 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 you don't get those type of calls with smoke and mirrors with a product that's not doing anything. When Department of Homeland Security says, we need you in D.C. as soon as you can get on the schedule because we need to present this software to several federal law enforcement agencies. This is not... I mean, then how do you, how do you have a prosecutor that then tries to take that and say these men weren't doing business? It initially, try to say, oh well, they don't even have a product. And, he had to go back off that. And that's my problem with that too, because they really initially look at the indictment, or they say you look at the search warrant they used, which was different from the indictment. The search warrant was trying to say we had purported software. That's the word. Like they did, it didn't exist. But then when they get to trial, they stayed away from. Was their software not because they knew at that point there was something and it would kill their case. So that's a lot of the evidence that was trying to support. Hey, let us show the software that we had. They didn't want to see that. They didn't want the jury to see what we were offering. And the question to me is why? If you have a shut and closed case that you believe is, is open and shut, period, why not show the evidence? Why not allow the jury to see what these men were talking about why exclude an expert witness that's been in the software industry or the employee it, it, the uh the staffing, the staffing industry what for 20 at that point it was uh about almost 15 years and this is a man who you're talking about not just someone in the staffing industry this is a man who works for the FBI basically Letting them know when there is a staffing scam going on. That is what he did for law enforcement to say, I see that these people are doing these particular things. That is a scam going on. 
he wrote a letter to John Walsh, the, uh, the U.S. attorney at the time, saying, look, I, I've been in this industry for 15 years. I've watched people who scam uh, staffing companies. I've watched staffing companies who are, uh, are scammers. These men have done nothing outside of the realms of what goes on in the staffing industry. Let me come before the jury and tell them. And what happens when he gets on the stand, no, late, no sooner than he mentions his name, the judge, Judge Christine Arguello in the Tenth Circuit of the Federal Courts, says, stop, get off the stand, we're not accepting your testimony. Now, everybody's head spun at that point. Like, what is going on? Why, why are you taking him off the stand? Why? That's the question. And that is a question we still want answered to this day. Why did you pull our expert witness off the stand to ensure the jury would never hear his take on the situation? And remember, it was two, it was two expert witnesses. They were two of them expert witnesses because uh, not only did Andrew Alberelli take the stand, but then uh, Kelly Balkum was going to take the stand. She had been, been in the staff and industry for 15 years working with Andrew. They said, no, we're not hearing what you have to say. Well, what doesn't make sense about this is that if the search for justice is the motive, the search for truth is the motive, all the information, so let me, let me break it down for you. The jury did not convict on the facts. They convicted on the lack of the facts presented in this case. They convicted on the lack of information. You put these expert witnesses on the stand that will confirm the work of these men were justified. It was legal. It is protocol what these men did. And Mont, to, to even make that situation worse. After the verdict, uh, we had somebody, a volunteer, talk to one of the jurors, showed them the letter written by Andrew Alvarelli, who had been in the staffing industry at that time for 15 years. The, that juror said, this casts a whole new light on the case. If I had seen this, there is no way I would have sat back and let a conviction uh, go down about these men. This, wow. this tells me that what they were doing, it, this is a professional who's been in the industry this long. If I had seen this, this would have changed my mind. Well, and this is why actually Sarakin, federal retired judge, said this statement. He cannot help but believe that a huge miscarriage of justice occurred in this case. For a retired federal judge to go as far as to write a screenplay of the, and you're going to hear some of that during this series, and wrote it that people might understand the injustice suffered by these men. And it goes on and on and on. If you're wondering what that is that you're feeling, ladies and gentlemen, the temperature's rising and the heat is up. This is AJC Radio. We continue this discussion on the other side of the break. The tsunami of injustice to law-abiding citizens known as the RP6. We'll be right back. Do you have a big brother? Well, I have a big brother, and I'm pretty sure that you and I experience some of the same things with a big brother. 
Big brothers will always be big brothers, right? I'm sure you'll agree. Well, my brother gets up in the morning. He takes a shower, heads to work, and at some point during the day, he's going to exercise and get that workout, as we all do. And, of course, depending on what's going on, he's going to sit down for two or three meals during the course of his day. And also, depending on what else is going on, he'll probably get caught up on current events and maybe take a few moments to turn a page in a book. How about your big brother? Some of the same stuff, right? Oh, did I mention that my big brother does all of that stuff? But he actually has to have permission a lot of times before he can do it. You see, my big brother was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he did not commit. That's right. That may sound shocking, huh? He's in prison. Wrongful convictions impact families in ways you cannot begin to imagine. But I've decided that I'm going to do something about it. And I extend an invitation to you to come on board and join me in this fight. You see, I'm helping to be a voice for my big brother and others who have been wrongfully convicted. We'd like you to take a few moments today and call a just cause where we fight for justice. You can call us toll free at 1-855-529-4252. That's 1-855-529-4252. Join with us as we fight for justice and for all big brothers across the land. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to 1 out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are 1 out of 3. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less 
and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off from school, I think it's an air raid. Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because we don't speak the language, it might be hard for them to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight, we continue the IRP-6 tsunami of injustice, talking about the injustice regarding the IRP-5 now, uh, law-abiding citizens left in harm's way by a criminal justice system that has failed. And as we were talking uh, prior to the break, talking about H. Lee, federal retired judge H. Lee Sarrigan, uh, who really came to the conclusion that a miscarriage of justice occurred here. Uh, and I don't think he's alone in his thought process of what in the world is going on in this country. What in the world was going on during this process, legal, illegal process, I call it, of the RP 5 We're going to hear a little bit about that and what people are talking about regarding the wrongful conviction. The RP6. Some people think that business is a game. And what we have learned is that business actually is war. My name is David Banks, and I'm serving an 11 year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. When they wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff, sometimes they didn't want to do it. Strange to me. I think it's still strange. It absolutely makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? And And then all of a sudden your whole life is ripped apart. Justice is not there anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to sentence. Ladies and gentlemen of America, what is going on when innocent men get locked away? Ladies and gentlemen, have you stopped to ask the question, where is justice? 
It's far away. They were floored that uh, they were even being raided. Um, uh, it became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys. Um, and it seemed like in many cases that they were um, collaborating or working with the prosecution. We constantly hear in the news, every week you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. There you have it. Tough questions in need for answers. Lady Justice has gone missing. Where is she? Is this happening in America? The American dream has turned into a nightmare. Crying children left behind as a result of a corrupt system and corruption. We will seek and search for justice. We will ask the tough questions. We will demand answers as justice lays idle in the streets of America. We look for the answer. Well, there you have it. The unbelievable uh, statements made there, and one of the gentlemen included in that was from the playwright written by H. Lee Sarrigan, portraying David Banks. He made the statement clearly that he lost everything as a result of an injustice that has happened. The difference here with the RP5 is that we continue as an organization to fight for justice. And Kendrick, we uh, are very much aware from your, what you have shared, what you have talked about in regards to what happened to you. I'm going to come and get, get your thoughts, uh, uh, Kendrick, on that. I believe we have a caller. Yes, we have a caller. Uh, Abdul would like to make a comment. Abdul, thanks for calling in. You're live. Yes, uh, thanks. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm an immigrant from Saudi Arabia, and I recently came to the country. And I was hoping to gain a better understanding about the, um, the upcoming uh, the election for president. And a friend of mine told me it's not decided by like the national vote, it's by state. And I was trying to understand, is that true, and how does that work? Okay, well, thank you for the uh, question. Basically, the vote is handled by the what, the what is called the Electoral College. And the way it's supposed to work is that when a, the majority of the voters uh, vote for that particular person in that area, the Electoral College will make that decision. So we appreciate the call, Abdul. So what we want to what we want to focus on clearly, uh, and Abdul had a question about the. And again, look, if you want to change the criminal justice system, uh, it is going to start at the ballot box. It is who we elect, it's who we vote for, uh, and that's critically important that we address that issue. However, getting back to the point of what we're talking about here tonight, H. Lee Sarakin federal retired judge. He's, he's known for the, uh, the overturn of the case regarding Hurricane Carter. Uh, if you have any, any wondering as far as who that is, uh, 
that was a huge case that we believe that gives more than enough credibility to federal retired Judge H. Lee Sarakin, who has served this country from the bench in a very, very huge way. And he drew the conclusion, when you take the time to write five articles in the Huffington Post addressing this injustice, asking these questions, as we said during that clip, something is wrong. And it should not go ignored. It should not go, well, these guys are just, you know, whatever. They got locked up. It happens. That's not, what, that's not how we change what's going on in this country. And it should not be happening. Samson, please chime in. Well, just listen to this, the miscarriage of justice that's going on across this, this, this entire case. I mean, Cliff mentioned it earlier how, the, you know, some of the big boys that were at the table for government contracting and trying to get a seat at the table had these lobbyists. And they were mentioning how they, they try and throw millions of dollars uh, at these three-letter agencies like the Department of Homeland Security in order just to get a seat at the table. And now we have it where all of a sudden, you know, we've got, you know, six intelligent men that came up with a product that nobody else had, and they automatically get a seat at the table with these guys because they're bringing something new to the table. But also the fact of the matter is, is that it's providing a value add to them. Well, obviously, if you can't see the, the, the writing on the wall associated with this, there there's jealousy there. There's conspiracy. There's everything behind it. And you're absolutely right, Lamont, in the fact that any change that we're going to see throughout this entire system is going to have to start at the ballot box. We're going to have to get in there. We're going to have to get this uh, information out there and and explain to them why. You know, why, why. There is no logical reason. You know, we've had ret- uh, retired federal judges. We've had, I mean, experts state there's absolutely zero reason why these men should be uh, behind bars for any length of time. And yet here we are with an injustice system, as we've called it many times, that has taken, again, decades away from these men and their families. Absolutely, and this is something that that we're going to continue to fight and continue to talk about. Right now, we're going to take an interview regarding uh, Howard Waltz, again, a a true advocate, I believe, uh, against injustice. Let's hear a little bit about that interview and what he has to say about this case. Let's hear it. And hello, Hal, how are you doing today? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Lamont? I'm doing pretty good. Okay, first, uh, Hal, tell us a little bit about Justice Restored. Uh, What was the passion behind that? What motivated that, uh, that put you in a position to say we have to do something uh, and speak out about some of the things that are happening within our criminal justice system and within our nation? Well, you are familiar with my personal story, which I am trying to leave behind and focus on the positive on what we can do to heal the system rather than just whining about what they did to me. But, you know, of course, being wrongfully held in prison for seven years without ever being convicted by any court of jurisdiction was what got my attention initially. But there were two horrifying revelations that prompted the writing of Justice Restored. One was when I read an article originally by Leonard Kaplan in the New York uh, uh, Magazine, but it was quoting a study from Columbia University Law School where they had determined that over a 23-year period in capital cases, the prosecutors and the judges got it wrong 73% of the time. Additionally, 9% of those people that were being tried for their life 
were actually innocent and provably so when the prosecutor filed the charges and put them on trial. There is no occupation on earth where you can get it wrong 82% of the time and keep your job that I know of other than being a U.S. judge or prosecutor. So when you get it wrong eight out of 10 times when you're killing someone, uh, that's that was just beyond the pale. And I know from working on over 400 criminal cases personally over the last decade that they're, they're no more attentive to rights and procedures when they're not putting the person to death. In fact, they're even more lax. The second article was an admission by the Department of Justice and the FBI stating that they had falsified the evidence using their elite forensic units uh, uh, for a period of 20 years. And they had been caught so many times, they finally had an independent study. And it was almost every case, quote, they had falsified the evidence. Joining those two things together, Lamont, if government admits that it lies in almost every case, and Columbia Law School and the courts themselves have now admitted to getting it wrong eight out of 10 times. Why do we even call it a system of justice? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, uh, as we have been familiar with the problems within the criminal justice system, again, knowing your story uh, specifically uh, and reading Again, you're reading, and ladies and gentlemen of America, you want to go out and get justice restored. Uh, it's one of the most informative reads that, uh, that I've ever read, uh, and it's to the point. You want to go out, uh, and, and, and how, where is that available? I presume everywhere where books are sold. Well, it, it, it should be now. As you know, I, I live in Eastern Europe. The, the harassment became too great for speaking out on this issue. But it's, it's number one on Amazon uh, and Kindle now in the categories of law, politics, and legislative. So that's probably the easiest place, but it's also being shipped to bookstores across America now. Okay, good deal. And our readers, uh, listeners, definitely need to go out and get that book. Uh, Hal, I want to address a, one, another, a portion in your book. As, as you know, very familiar with the IRP6 uh, story, the injustice that has happened and has occurred there. Uh, tell us a little bit that what prompted you also to feel a need to tell uh, brief in brief the injustice that happened to the IRP-6. Well, I could only fit 10 stories into the book to buttress each of the arguments for reform. And if IRP-6 case isn't one of the 10 worst, I don't know which, which might be. You have all the elements with which I've become so familiar in these studies over a decade. Uh, It's the same thread of prosecutorial misconduct and in cases such as this one, outright judicial lawlessness. I I mean, what Judge Christine Arguella did to these men, uh, she should not be practicing law beyond the bench. I mean, she should be in prison because she's basically put six honest good men uh, away for a decade or more uh, each and and they had no business even being arrested. It was not even the purview of federal government. It was her job to stop this injustice. So this story had to be included, Lamont. There was just no way around it. It it is uh, it is textbook criminal prosecution. And uh, and I, I agree with that. Uh, and that term could not fit better 
criminal prosecution. Uh, really, yeah, that, that quotes <laughs> Lamont. Let's put quotes yes. around that criminal because it's the criminals that did the prosecuting, not those Absolutely. fine men that were sitting no, on no, the no. defense table. No, no, I agree with that, and and that's something that uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, our society uh, and people just do not want to believe that corruption is on that level, no matter how the statistic, uh, prosecutional misconduct in our current court system these days, no matter how many wrongful convictions come out of, uh, out of American prisons every day, every week, every month, people are being set free because of wrongful convictions. And no matter how compelling the statistics are, it's like we are blinded by a society that is stuck on the fact, well, no, if you go to prison, you deserve to be there. If, you're, if the prosecutor brings a case, they, they must have thought you must have done something wrong. That way of That's thinking and that mindset has got to be eliminated from the minds of the American people uh, because it simply is not true. Your thoughts on well, that? Well, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, I believe that. Every member of my family believed that with all our hearts. If someone had told me my own story, I would have said that absolutely cannot happen in my in my country. But I guess I should thank these dishonest prosecutors and corrupt judges because they have certainly built a market for for my book. I mean, I was more shocked than anyone when I got a call from the from the publisher saying it had become number one bestseller in all of its categories. I said, this is a joke. Let's wait till April first. But she said, no, this is not a joke. And I said, well, how can this be? I've done no advertising. You know, my other books have been minor successes, Justice Denied, a film was made about it, but I'm not a household name. And she said, you've been on the radio. Says you've had millions of people hear about the book coming out. And apparently the government's built such an audience for you, 71 million people convicted. And Lamont, all of their families know about how corrupt the system is now, too. So I guess that's how, you know, I mean, would you ever have believed that a book on mass incarceration could become a number one bestseller? Uh, probably not. Probably, yeah, not. probably not. So I guess I ought to thank these corrupt people, but it, it, it does not uh, slow me down from wanting to see every one of them pay a penalty for what they do to American citizens every day in almost every court across America. I say almost because I haven't found an honest one yet, but I'm still looking. Wow. And that's, uh, that's profound. I mean, the majority, and you know, we hear this all the time that the majority of our criminal justice system is intact. I, I beg to differ uh, because I believe that the statistics uh, do not support that, that claim. Uh, you'll say that we have, for the most part, most prosecutors are right or, or honest people. Again, the statistics that do not support that claim. Based on the numbers of mass incarceration, it tells me if mass means huge, large, and if it's a large amount of people in prison that should not be there, there has to be a large amount of prosecutors that are responsible and judges that are responsible. You can't have a mass uh, statement and have a little, uh, have very, very small numbers of people within the prosecution and the, and, the, and the judges in this country in a small number. Those two things don't come together. If we have a small problem, do you agree with that? I, I completely agree. And instead of, 
uh, calling it a system of justice and saying it is very much intact. We should call it a system of mass incarceration because that is wholly intact. That's all this is. It is a grinder. It is to take citizens living their lives and under a myriad of laws, 314,000 federal statutes now, there were only three in 1787, by the way, the three that are authorized by the Constitution. Um, that was published just a few days ago by the Heritage Foundation. We now have 314,000 ways Congress has made up to send us to prison. So it is not a system of justice. It is a system of mass incarceration. And also they have to use the word mass in our case because we're not only huge, we're the biggest in world and human history. No thug, no dictator, no evil empire has ever incarcerated more of its people than the United States of America and its last four presidents. That, that should wake up every American if nothing else does. We don't want to be the best at putting our people in prison. Let's find something else to be good at. No, absolutely. And, and how I'll tell you this, you were, uh, and, and, my, and this is what I'm really, really puzzled with, that um, how does a person spend seven years in prison without a conviction? Without well, that's a very good question, which the courts are now having to answer um, because I finally got a federal judge, as uh, you know, my story in Virginia, a uh, wonderful man, former federal judge Arthur Strickland, filed a habeas uh, petition into the courts of North Carolina saying, look, the docket sheet shows this man was never convicted by any court of jurisdiction. You threw him in jail and held him there for 87 months until Judge Strickland started complaining. And, and uh, now they're having to defend themselves. So once I got a powerful person like that on my side, like the IRP-6, hopefully Judge Sorokin will have the same effect on Arguella and these other bandits. But they couldn't answer, so government did not even respond. So I won by default. But after all these 56 federal crimes this judge and prosecutor committed against me, they just simply said, ah, well, okay, we got away with it for a decade. And they didn't even have the courage to respond. So it's, it's amazing and shocking at just how arrogant and aloof these people are from the law. But, but that stems back, if listening want to know why, is because starting in 1967, these people judicially, not legislatively, judicially, they started making decisions from the bench to give themselves immunity. The prosecutors quickly said, you can't leave us out here on the line and in the front lines. So judicial decisions quickly followed after Pearson versus Ray, the first one. And now these two groups of people that get it wrong 82% of the time, even when they're killing someone, are completely immune. You can't do anything to them. They can't lose their job unless they commit a crime outside of their duties as prosecutor or judge. It's, 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 think of what people would be like, human beings, and these are nothing but human beings dressed in pinstripes and black robes. Think of what human beings would do if there was no penalty, no matter how egregious their misconduct. What do you think our world would be like? No, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I think a major problem in this country uh, is, again, the failure to speak out. And, and again, people are afraid to speak out about 
about injustice. They're afraid to speak about corruption. And they're afraid of the United States government, no matter how you look at it, whether it's at the state level or the federal level. They got an issue with it, with government and judges and courts. It's an intimidating factor. We did a show uh, a little bit uh, at the end of last year, maybe September, uh, and we were discussing the imitation, the in- intimidation factor, the fear factor of America's right. criminal justice system. With Governor Bogdanovich's uh, uh, brother, and and then I was on your show in April on that same topic. Yes, and I think that's something that. And let me ask you this: How how do we get the country, uh, those that are in power, led in in Congress, the the these people who make laws? And Congressman Rangel made a very a profound statement to me in an interview we did with him, and he said, "Take the questions." to the people that can produce the answers, and that's the legislation. Take it to them. Ask the questions and take them to people who can, who can fix it. Congress has the power, so much power, to fix what is wrong within our system. How do we how get them to get up and say, you know what? This has to change. They're already talking about overcriminalization. They're already talking about mass incarceration. They're talking about all types of issues of criminal justice reform. What do we need to do to get them to take that next step to do something that has, makes an, that has an impact? Because they have the power to do it. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Howard Waltz, again, a dear friend of this network, as well as the organization of Just Cause. I want to go around the table if we can. What do you say about Hal Waltz? His, he has no hesitation to attack a system, to attack the system that has failed. He talks about, uh, and Kendrick speaks very uh, clear about the injustice that happened to you and the other guys. When you hear Hal talk, Kendrick, tell me, how refreshing is that to know that we're not the only ones in this fight, but somebody is in it equally to make a difference. Yeah, and and it's and I wouldn't call I, in person. I wouldn't categorize it attacking because he's the, the gut, they're attacking themselves. He's just telling the truth. Right. It's refreshing to hear somebody just tell it like it is. There's a problem here. What you did was wrong. What the court does is wrong. It's not in just our case. It's in other cases. And but if you don't deal with the truth of the matter. It's never going to change. Right. If you don't deal with the ugly, he's, he's just pointing out, look, this is ugly, but you did the ugly. The, right. The, the courts did the ugly. He didn't do the ugly. I didn't do the ugly. You didn't do the ugly. They did it. So it's not on us to sit back and say, well, let's make this pretty for us. Well, why is there at stake here? Right. I lost six years. I have friends that are still losing years as I speak right now. As those seconds pass by, they're still in prison right now because of an injustice that needs to be changed. And do they care? Is it is it not also ugly that an innocent person is losing his life? So hey, call it out like this because they don't care that those men at every night sleep away from their family. They don't get the opportunity to, to have their loved ones call them and say, "Hey, how are you doing? How was your day? Hey, did you eat well? Did did you did you have a nice nap? Those those common things that we just take for granted, the government just throws it away, and that's ugly. So. I commend a guy like Harold Waltz who's willing to say, you know what, it's, it's the truth. No matter what it looks like, let me just call it like it is. 
No, absolutely right. Samson, your thoughts? Yes, uh, and I got to kind of concur with, with Kendrick on this and the fact that it's like you don't hear a single subject that's brought to the table that he backs away from. You never hear a bit of wavering in his stance as far as what's right, what's wrong, what's justice, what's injustice. He addresses every single topic. He, he calls it out, you know, what happened to these men was a travesty. You know, the judge shouldn't even be practicing law. Absolutely. And, and, and he just puts it all on the table, and he doesn't back away from it. And, and honestly, an upstanding person like that and, you know, former judge himself, I mean, it's refreshing to have that kind of perspective on the whole situation. Dennis. And if you think about it, I mean, uh, he's experienced what uh, our guys have experienced, the RP6. Uh, uh, he was wrongfully convicted. He was in prison uh, for no reason. I mean, there was nothing ever bought against him. I mean, they just stuck him in prison and, and kept him there. So he's angry, and he, and he knows that uh, this this justice system that we call, you know, blind uh, is messed up, and it needs to be fixed. And he's spoke out against the, the, the judges and the prosecutors, how they are uh, technically above the law. Uh, you know, if they do anything within the realms of their, you know, their job, they're good. But, you know, it's just sad that, that, that America has not heard. And we yell and we yell and we yell and we yell and we yell. And then people start listening and when it affects them. But he spoke out, spoke out because he's been there, done that. No, absolutely right. And uh, these are issues that we cannot remain silent on. The IRP5 are real people just like you and me. They hurt just like you and me. David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Clinton Stewart, and Dave Zappolo remain behind the wall. We will fight until justice is found. Men who stuck to their integrity and would not change it because what they stuck to was the truth. They're innocent. Does that matter? Does it matter at all? This is AJC Radio. Tonight we continue the discussion. The RP6 Tsunami of Injustice. Law-abiding citizens left in harm's way. We'll be right back. The criminal justice system has a set of rights created to protect you. But do you think it's really protecting us? You had a right to remain silent. But that really means you had a right to be silent, doubted, interrogated, suspected. The color of your skin can and will be used against you in the court of law. In their hands, we're incarcerated five times more often than white people convicted for the same crimes. You have a right to attorney during questioning. In some states, 80% of criminal defendants can't even afford an attorney. So an overworked public defender controls your fate. One government employee, countless lives at stake. You had a right to be innocent until proven guilty. But somehow, about 47% of the wrongly convicted are black. And if they do prove you're guilty, they're going to write you a run-on sentence on average 20% longer than white defendants accused of the same crime. Even if you get out, you're still not free. When you're an ex-con, they had a right to deny you a bank account, deny you a mortgage, deny you a job, 
deny your vote. And if you don't remain perfect with the smallest slip up, smallest infraction, the most honest mistake, you're going to join us, the 80% who come back to prison within five years, as I did. That's when you realize they didn't bring us here to thrive. They brought us here to build this. The plantation and the prison are actually no different. The past is the present. It ain't no coincidence. This was the plan since abolition, to keep us subjugated by creating this system. But I believe in a different set of rights. The right to stand up and be heard. The right to reform a broken justice system and build a new future. We had the right to be silent. Now it's our right to speak up. Do you understand these rights as I read them to you? Mass incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration, historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison for that group of black men with very low levels of schooling, that's become a normal life event. And that's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. That's about one in nine. The research shows the kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioral problems, depressive symptoms, acting out. And there's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that incarceration becomes an inherited trait. The underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty. And we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. Some of these illegal injunctions. 
Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over that. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. Dr. Martin Luther King as he talks about the right to protest the right and he asked one question he said that you remain true as a nation to what you said on paper why is that he said he read somewhere that you have a right to stand against injustice and we live by that creed or we should and by that code, we should. But America and the criminal justice system of this nation has come up lacking to that respect. And I'll tell you right now, folks, as we talk about, and he made the statement, he said, we have difficult days ahead. We've been in those difficult days, and it is 2019. And injustice, in my opinion, has mounted some very egregious acts of injustice since that speech given by Dr. Martin Luther King. Dennis, uh, we've seen horrific acts of injustice. We should have come further than that. Your thoughts? I mean, with the RP6 alone, I'm telling you that, I don't care how you look at it. When you talk about the tsunami that it caused in the lives and the families and the friends and the church and how, I'm telling you, a lot of people don't want to look at the racial aspect of it, but we got to be real. I mean, let's be real. Here you had, uh, you know, six businessmen, uh, five of them were black. They came up with a product that, uh, you know, everybody wanted, and, and yet the big guys, you know, IBM, 
per se. Uh, you know, the big guys, they want they, they wanted a part of it, but they weren't getting it. So what did they do? They went after it. They, they were like, we're not going to let you, of all people, uh, come up with a product uh, that will be, be known to have, you know, made such an impact in how we secure our how we secure our borders. But anyway, it's just so sad that this country still, still, after after that speech, have moved very little when it comes to you know equality and when it comes to justice for all, and not 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 based on how much money you make, where you're from. You know, your culture, none of that. Justice, I mean, to me, it has not moved much at all. And, Dennis, to that point, you're absolutely right in the fact that, that Dr. King was addressing something written in the, in the, the fundamental laws uh, of our country and the fact that we're allowed to, by law, to peacefully protest and exercise our rights. The same thing that the IRP 5 or 6 were trying to do, they're trying to exercise their rights. They're trying to exercise their patriotism and their God-given talent to produce a viable product that can be used across the across our nation to help prevent another 9-11 attack. Now, in, in the history of our nation, there are very few attacks that go to that level of tragedy, especially in modern history. But now you have talented men that are out there, and they're doing everything in their power to prevent this, and they're being sentenced to prison because the fact of the matter is, is they, we have a system of injustice that's just trying to throw them under the bus. They're trying to take what they want. And because they see these men as the little guys, they're going to throw their weight around. They're going to buy a judge. They're going to buy a prosecutor. They're going to buy a jury and withhold critical information, as Kendrick pointed out earlier, and ultimately send shockwaves through a church, through families, and through a community. Oh, and that's why we call it a tsunami. Uh, the uh, definition of a tsunami is an arrival or occurrence of something in overwhelming quantities or amounts. The effects of the tsunami range from destruction and damage, death, injury, millions of dollars in financial loss, and long-lasting psychological problems for the inhabitants of the region. The actual effects continue for many years after the disaster has, has, has struck. So what does that tell you is the effects, and that's why the only adjective we could give this injustice and best describe it is that tsunami. It is a disaster. It is a psychological. How many times have we talked about people that have been locked up for years as a result of injustice, a wrongful conviction, who lost hope and cannot even function in society years after they're out of the penitentiary? After they're out of America's prison, they can't even function. They don't know how to survive. This is destruction of a person. Thus, we call uh, what happened to the IRP sex. And let's not get the stigma that you get from society. That's I mean, right. The minute you tell somebody that, hey, you spent time in prison, that, I mean, that gives them a connotation in their head that, oh, you must be just the dregs of the earth. And That's right. A lot of people, you know, these are just normal citizens who some of them did break the law, some of them did not. But they, they, they don't deserve to be ostracized from society, not given a second chance, not given their first chance back as, as we lost. Our first chance was gone. We, don't, we didn't do anything to, to need a second chance. But it's, it's just unfair to 
to stigmatize those who have been victimized by this uh, justice system. No, absolutely right. It's one of those things that, uh, and it, you're right. How much more so for those that are innocent, like the IRP5? Innocent, and then you want to tag them as menaces to society? You want to act like they don't have rights? You want to treat them? You don't want to give them a job? It's not about righting a wrong. They could care less. They could care less about, they're not been a, the system is full of egos. They're full of arrogance. Rather than, we've lost our way as human beings to say, look, I got this wrong. Get these men out of there. I got it wrong. The system has become so arrogant from people in positions of power, such as judges. Federal Judge Christine Arguello made this statement, I have your life in my hand. How dare you take the position as if you are God. And you know these men were innocent. You know these men were innocent. Put on a defense, put on a case showing clearly of the injustice of this system. And as a federal judge, you ignore that. Unacceptable. Judge H. Lee Sarakin had to say about the acts, the RP6 case. I think an appellate court would do one of two things. They'd either order that the transcript be produced uh, or they'd have to reverse. You know, it would baffles me as to why anyone would deny that motion. Uh, it's inconceivable to me that a judge would say, no, you can't have the record of this trial. It's inconceivable to me in this day and age in the federal court, particularly in Colorado, by the way, which I think it has sort of advanced when it comes to computers, that they don't have an alternate way uh, to maintain the, the record. And uh, the fact that the court reporter doesn't have it or hasn't typed it up, um, as everybody says, is inconceivable. So there's this record exists somewhere, uh, yes. and, and for some reason, the, they're resisting producing it, uh, I think, is a fair inference. And that's why that particular segment of the testimony of the transcript is so important, because if, if that weren't the contention and there's something missing, Pellet Court is liable to say, well, unless there's some prejudicial error involved, what difference does it make? But this is so critical that that's why they want it, and that's what the big fuss is about, and legitimately so. Well, there you have it. Federal retired judge H. Lee Sarakin speaking on one part of this injustice. Kendrick, the missing transcript. In most cases, if there is a page of a transcript missing, it is grounds for a mistrial. Automatically. 
because you don't have to your disposal information in this case where the judge violated their right and forced them to testify, compelled them to. If I compel you to take the stand, I have violated the law. Why is that so difficult? The appellate court knows this. And if you make the statement, I said something, and even if you can't recall it, perception-wise, if the perception or the belief of the defendant believes he is being forced, even if he wasn't, if he believed he was being compelled, you have to throw it out. It is a violation of the law and the interpretation of that law. Kendrick, your thoughts? Yeah, and if anything really just stabs me in the chest whenever this subject comes up because the, to live the situation, and, the, and it's not just – and even all the things you mentioned are accurate. There are so many other additional reasons why this is just so illegal and so wrong. And you're, and you're sitting there, and, and, and just for a moment, if you can imagine how we felt, sitting there realizing the law is on our side at this point. I mean, there is no way that we believed that a court of law could refuse you the accurate and truthful transcript and put you in prison for it. I mean, that's, that, this, this case should have been overturned, thrown out, new trial, whatever you want to – what legal – option should have happened but to watch and stare in a person's eyes and you look at that i remember the judge there was no feeling for us no care just when we requested a transcript no let's go on with the trial and then as you as you hear all the as our family is is conveying to us because after this we're incarcerated and we're going to appeal and you're like there is no way the law is on our side there's no way that this can stand and you watch as other appellate judges opine, speak around the issue, and let this go forward. And you're sitting there like, can this be real? I mean, it just even when I look back on today, it just doesn't seem real. And it just it just stings you that how can you how can you look at a person and know that I am doing you wrong? And it just doesn't move you to say, you know what? Let's make this right. Let's let justice prevail. Well, justice left the courtroom a long time a long time ago. It's a, it's an unfortunate, and this is why the belief in the system is lost. You cannot believe in a system that does such egregious acts against an individual, against a group of people who are innocent. They make that innocent, guilty of nothing. And, and I always wonder, like, what does it give you to do this? I mean, why would you, why would you go along with this injustice? And you have, the, you have the key to say, you know what? I can't let this stand. One decision, these men are free because this is just totally unjust. But you don't. I mean, you have the- I mean if you think of the average person – who, who does that? Who does that? Yeah. Uh, and to take it a step further, a judge has the power 
to overturn a conviction by a jury in the interest of justice. Think about that. You can go before a jury. They found you guilty on everything. A judge's job is to sit on that bench and say, you know what? Thank you for your service. And I've seen it happen. But I am, they call it vacating the jury's ruling or their decision in the interest of justice. None of that happened here. And when, Kendrick, you say, you try to wrap your hands around this, how do you do that? How do you look in the faces of these family members? And you have the prosecution, the government of the United States, those folks that represented the government are high-fiving. You're high-fiving this act of injustice. And it makes you wonder, were you, when, you, when the judge in our case, Christine Arguello, when, when she was in law school, she was a optimistic, bright-eyed, new student. And they, they didn't teach you this in school. They taught you to follow the law. What happened? That's right. It's like what happened along the way where, you know what, I, the power, did the power get to her? Uh, it just feels great that, hey, you know what, I, got, I can, at, on a one whim, send people away and ruin their lives. On this whim, I can, I can save a life. And does that, does that corrupt a person? It, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. It really doesn't. But to make the statement. I have your life in my hand. And to send these men shackled, is that correct, Henry? Yeah, we were shackled. we were we were immediately I mean when we came in for this this is just kind of ironic. Well the sentencing was going on and we didn't know the verdict, but the the courtroom was filled with uh US Marshals. It was filled with uh uh, uh higher ups, even the the actual uh, U.S. attorney was in the courtroom. He never showed up the whole trial, but then he's in the courtroom surrounded by a lot of suits, and we're and you get this feeling, oh no, this is a setup. Because how would all you come to the to the uh, verdict ready to go? So the marshals were around the uh, the judges stand. They were around surrounding the courtroom, I and mean, they were everywhere in the courtroom. Well, how did how would they be prepared if you didn't know the verdict? We didn't know the verdict. And so immediately, there. once the verdict is read, they pull out their handcuffs. We're shackled. We're ordered to take our suit coats off, whatever we had, wallets, belts, anything of value, trying to hand it to our family. We're not prepared. My truck, my car is in paid parking. It could, be, it could have been told. It was, thank God my wife was there, people there that could take my truck home. We were planning. We were not expecting this, but the, the court was ready. And we, from that moment on, we were shuffled away and... Never saw freedom. It just it just didn't make sense because they were prepared from the very beginning, as you see now. They were prepared just to send us away, and we were basically uh, deer, you know, in the headlights, just just dumbfounded that is this how the system really works? Is this what it does? It just doesn't. And, and again, I just you can't you can't stop saying this doesn't make any sense. You have. Unbelievable. Six men (laughs) 
family members, watching your loved ones shackle as monsters for nothing. For nothing. You can imagine the emotion of the families because they once believed in a system. Surely, justice would prevail. It failed. Seven years later, we still fight for justice. Uncomprehendable, uncalled for, and the most egregious acts by the court. How Walt said it best. Judge Christina Aguero should not be on the bench. You stripped these men and humiliated them again for nothing, knowing in your heart that these men were innocent. And, and might I add too, we were we we were telling this uh, how the uh, sentencing happened to an uh, attorney. We were just as we were reviewing attorneys for. Uh, for appeal and he made a very profound statement he goes he was in shock when we told him hey the uh john walsh was there and at the time he was the u.s attorney for colorado and he was like do you know what he was saying when he was there we said no what what does that mean we don't you know this is all new to us he's basically he goes he was sending a clear signal to the judge i want this one give this one to me make sure that this is a guilty verdict he goes they don't show up the 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 u.s sitting u.s attorney does not show up to a verdict just any verdict you you know that's what you do to el chapo's or or bernie madoff's so who are we that we warranted the he, to him to leave his desk there's no pressing matters for that day but to come and hear the sentencing verdict for the irp6 just a, a startup company trying to do make law enforcement software to benefit the country we're not selling to Corporation, we're selling, we're trying to sell this product to the government. And the ASU, AUSA comes to the verdict with his support staff and all there, and the guy says he was basically sending a signal to say, give me this one. Well, if that's the case, put the chains on the door. Turn the lights out in America's courts across this nation and call it a day. Because the moment we do that, we are wasting our time seeking justice. Shut it down. Shut it down. This is AJC Radio, the tsunami of injustice of the RP6. We'll be right back. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders, 
30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely, there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. Tonight is, what do you say? To the families of the RP5 to the Christmases. Thanksgivings, the birthdays, the cookouts, or just family talk around the table. What do you say to the children about a system that snatched their father away, their husbands? What do you say? It's tragic. We find ourselves as a society, as an organization, deeply troubled. AJC Radio, Just Cause Organization, will continue this fight. For the death of Luana Banks-Clark, 
who suffered damage from this tsunami that cost her her life. What do we say to the mother of Luana Banks Clark? The sister of David Banks? The friend Clint Stewart, Demetrius Harper, Dave Zapolo. What do we say? There are no answers. There are no explanations for egregious acts of injustice. Collateral damage of injustice to the church community who has suffered loss. Because we did something that we simply could do. What do you say? To the sleepless nights of a mother and a pastor whose people have been left in harm's way. Ladies and gentlemen of America, make no mistake about it. This is war. This is war. You have people with platforms in this country that could cry out against this injustice that simply choose not to do so. We have entertainers in Hollywood that could speak to this issue that simply remain silent. Because it's not my problem. It's not my situation. But it could happen to you. Surely, is there not a cause to fight against injustice, against rogue judges that abuse the robe they wear to inflict oppression among the innocent. Judge Christine Arguello failed at the oath she took. John Walsh, U.S. Attorney, in this case, failed and dishonored the oath to seek justice. Matthew Kirsch failed to uphold the oath. That should have never happened. And we wonder why our country is divided. Why kids are growing up without their fathers. Why people are committing suicide behind the wall. Because of injustice. This is our plight. This is our war. We will not cease to fight until something changes. And Lamont, to your point, I mean, you mentioned earlier how there's just, there's so much ego and there's so much, uh, 
you know, puffed up personality that is in these offices. They, they truly have let their eyes get clouded over to the fact that, um, to your point, their, their oath of office, but more importantly, their title is they're a public servant. They are supposed to serve and represent the people of whatever district, whatever area that they're over. But instead, they, they look towards lining their pockets, taking bribes, and pursuit of their own self-worth, as it were, rather than to what should be a noble calling that has now just turned into some pious drudgery of gathering money as fast as you can, regardless of who you hurt along the way. Um, I personally think that, you know, just from what I've seen of the impact this has had on, as you mentioned, a pastor, a church, families, a community, that the judge, the U.S. attorney, anybody that is culpable to these things, they, they best believe, as you said, they've got a fight on their hands. This is not something that's going to back down or go away anytime soon. Five months ago, almost to the date, two days ago, six to five months removed from the death of LaWanna Banks-Clark. Five months. This is something that, make no mistake about it, we will not let you forget. A young lady, the age, tender age of 56, lost her life. Judge Christina Guayo, John Walsh, Matthew Kirsch, all those that administered injustice and allowed it to be, you are culpable in the death. Of the one of Bex Clark, and it makes me feel. Now I'm not really clear. You know the, the case about the uh, the the college exams, and what parallel I bring here is because Awana Clark was was basically hung over our heads as a threat. The reason why she had so much pressure on what happened to her was wrong because she was used as to bait. get us as bait, exactly to get us to try to basically just plea and say, hey, government, you're right. We did whatever you say we did. We're, we're not going to fight for our life. And it makes me feel for the children of those parents. Wrong or right, but you should not. If there was a crime committed, go after the person that did the crime. Don't bring in family members. Don't put the children under, under any undue pressure. But Wanda Clark is what happens when you do that. And this is, this is their playbook, and it's in the open. And I think people should pay attention to that because is that justice? I, I, if your case is so strong, then why bring in a family member? Why bring in LaWanna Clark in and trump up some charges? Because you can do it. And this is the, this is the price you all going to pay for not agreeing with the government, not saying, hey, just go ahead and say that you are guilty. Give us, give us this case nice and easy so we can keep our conviction rate up. That's, what, that's what's so wrong about the LaWanna Clark is she lost her life. She's put on undue pressure. We don't know who's next. There's a lot of people in this whole situation, our family members, that had so much pressure. But we don't know who's next. We don't know. Tomorrow's not guaranteed to any of us. But we continue to fight because does this country care anymore about, you know what, we need fairness across the board. We need liberty, as we promised. We said we got the pursuit of happiness and liberty. But what gives you the right to just take it because 
you want to win. Well, you, you, these are the after effects of your malicious intent. Acts of manipulation that you thought you could use Luana Clark as a pawn of intimidation. You were wrong. May Luana Banks Clark rest in peace and those culpable in her death be held accountable at the highest level. That is my wish. And as long as AJC Radio Just Cause Organization continues to fight this fight of injustice, there is no stone we will not turn over. There is no corruption that we will not expose for justice. That is what we're supposed to do. Um, I think it's a tragedy. When a body bag is filled and a loved one is taken. And Kendrick is correct. The Wanda Banks Clark was banged. But at what cost? Should have never been dragged into this on any level. This is a 56-year-old church counselor. That did that did nothing. Did nothing. And you grab her and snatch her out of a crowd and you cost her her life. Deal with that, Judge Arguello. You lay down the night in your bed. You use this word loosely in the courts of this country. Culpable? You're culpable. John Walsh, you're culpable. Matthew Kirsch, and all those who added undue pressure for no reason, you will be held accountable. And you will be called out on that. Ladies and gentlemen, on next Tuesday, we will continue this discussion. Part two, Tsunami of Injustice. We talk about the betrayal of Gary Walker, the lies of deceit that are clearly contradicted not by somebody else's statements by his own you'll hear Lawana Clark's position on the betrayal of Gary Walker you will hear the frustration and the pressure in that statement made by Lawana Clark you will hear from Yolanda Walker the acts of betrayal of a wife and a son. Are these conversations easy? No. But we will have them until justice is found. Until next time, America, good night. And continue to seek for justice. This is AJC Radio signing off. Good night. I think an appellate court would do one of two things. They'd either order that the transcript be produced uh, or they'd have to reverse. You know, it would baffles me as to why anyone would deny that motion. Uh, it's inconceivable to me that a judge would say, no, you can't have the record of this trial. It's inconceivable to me in this day and age in the federal court, particularly in Colorado, by the way, which I think has sort of advanced when it comes to computers, that they don't have an alternate way uh, to maintain the, the record. And uh, 
the fact that the court reporter doesn't have it or hasn't typed it up, um, as everybody says, is inconceivable. So there's this record exists somewhere, uh, yes. and and for some reason that they're resisting producing it. And I think is a fair inference, and that's why that particular segment of the testimony of the transcript is so important. Because if if that weren't the contention, and there's something missing, appellate court is liable to say, well, unless there's some prejudicial error involved, what difference does it make? But this is so critical that that's why they want it, and that's what the big fuss is about, and legitimately so. Thank you. 